through the Gospel of John. We, we just had the sweetest worship. It was just wonderful. My heart was lifted. And as I'm going through the Gospel of John and preparing to preach it, as I've been going for the last four years, four or five years, I'm realizing that some portions of John's Gospel requires some hard preaching. I mean, it really does. Um, but I was encouraged as I, read, as I read a quote from Dr. Sproul. He said this, and I want you to hear this. I was sharing this with Brian. He said, hard preaching makes soft hearts. Soft preaching makes hard hearts. In our text today, John tells his readers about Jesus calling his disciples, or about Jesus calling the nation of Israel to repentance and to put their trust in him the long-awaited Messiah. But instead of that, as you read through the Gospel of John, you see most rejected him. They, they rejected their only hope. And this was no surprise, because approximately 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this would happen just as it was happening in his day. And sadly, it's still happening in our day. However, I want to encourage you, even if our witness for Christ doesn't bring as many to him as we would like. I mean, we'd like to see everybody saved that we share the gospel with. But we are still continue to be faithful witnesses for Christ. We're not responsible for the salvation of others, but simply to reach out to them. <clears throat> and what we're going to see today in this text is God's sovereignty and salvation. And yet, man's responsibility in it. Did you know that? That God is sovereign in salvation, yet man is still responsible? So let's read our text. John chapter 12. We're going to go from 37 to verse 50. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given himself me a commandment. Given himself, himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore... I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your eternal word. Open our hearts, God. 
to hear what the Spirit of God is saying through His eternal Word. Let us not put our opinions, our feelings, our emotions ahead of your Word. Let your Word speak to our hearts and pierce our hearts and change our lives in Christ's name. I want to read you two short stories of what happened or what appears to be failures in the life in the lives of two men, but actually turned out to be a success. First one is General Mark Clark was one of the great heroes of World War II. He led the Salerno invasion that Winston Churchill said was the most daring, amphibious operation we have launched, or which I think has ever been launched on a similar scale in war. At the time, Clark was promoted to Lieutenant General. He was the youngest man of that rank in the U.S. Army. He graduated from West Point in 1970. At the top of his class? No. He was 111th from the top of his class of 139. Even if you never earned a college degree, don't worry, you're in good company. Second story, Irving Berlin had only two years of formal schooling. He never learned how to read music. When he composed his songs, he would hum the melody and a musical secretary would write down the notes. He became one of the greatest songwriters the country has ever known. And what appeared to be two lives that would fail actually turned out to be extremely successful. They may have made mistakes, but those failures turned into success. And there are countless thousands of stories, I'm sure, uh, that we could talk about that people whose failures eventually became success stories. We all know them. But God never has failures, never makes mistakes. He can't. He's perfect in all his attributes. However, sometimes the world may view God as a failure. And sadly, sometimes even Christians may think that God has failed. And as we've been reading and studying the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle, preaching the good news of the glorious Gospel, and the outcome was unbelief and eventually death by way of a bloody cross. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Gospel of Mark, the 15th chapter, verses 31 and 32 says, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That was failures in the eyes of the world, right? But Jesus, that grain of wheat, who went into the ground and died, rose again and produced many seeds of salvation. Now, I wouldn't call that a failure, but I would call that the greatest success story that the world has ever heard. But what about the multitudes of those Jesus preached to who never believed? Did God and Christ actually fail? Was the gospel not powerful enough to save them? I mean, Hebrews 4.12 says... The word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And is a a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. Is that not powerful enough? Was the gospel not powerful enough to save them? And what we're going to see 
Today in our text is what appears to be failure on God and Christ's part, but was actually a purpose fulfilled. And here's what I want to challenge you with tonight. When anyone refuses to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has not failed in his purpose, but his purpose is actually fulfilled. All through redemptive history, God called the nation of Israel to believe him to the point of obedience. He told Adam and Eve not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They disobeyed, fell under the curse, and their offspring. However, God promised them a redeemer. Genesis 3.16. Later, God called Noah to believe him that he would destroy the world by a catastrophic flood. Noah believed God, built an ark. He preached probably 120 years about the coming flood of God's divine judgment, but no one believed, and the world was destroyed. Only Noah and his family were saved, eight and all. Later on, God called Abraham to believe that through him there would be descendants as numerous as the stars that God would bless. He believed God, and what does the Bible say? It was credit to him as righteousness. Then God called Moses to believe him, that he would deliver Israel from their bondage in Egypt and establish a holy nation. That happened. David was called to believe God, who promised David an eternal throne and kingdom for from a son from his line. And that was fulfilled, we know, in Christ. And the nation of Israel was consistently and constantly called to believe the prophets, to turn from their idolatry, turn from their sin, and turn to God. Finally, God sent his only son, Israel's promised Messiah, whose perfect life and sacrificial death established God's gracious salvation promises, called the new covenant for those who would believe. So you see, God has invited Israel to believe him from day one. But most of the nation of Israel refused to believe him. And and because they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, there was a judicial hardening of their hearts. It wasn't that Jesus failed to call them to believe. He didn't fail. For he constantly did signs, wonders, and miracles, and preached the good news to them. And as we go through this text, we're going to see not failure, but a fulfilled divine purpose. And there's three points I want to bring to you, to your attention tonight, that we derive from this text, that we can apply to our lives. They are, the first one is, Jesus calls people to believe. The second one is, Jesus is rejected by the people. And the third one is, Jesus pardons the heart of people who reject him. Let's go to our first point. Jesus calls people to believe. Just as, excuse me, just as we were called to believe the gospel of Christ, somebody preached to us, we ought to preach the gospel to others so they too can believe. Let's read verses 44 to 50 again. And you ask yourself your question, did Jesus call people to believe? And as you read this text, you have to say emphatically, yes. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, 
I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. When and where Jesus spoke these words is not really clear. And I think um, verses 44 to 50, which we just read, is probably a summary of Christ's public ministry to Israel, which ended. Because if you read verse 36, which we didn't read tonight, but that was the last time, what did Jesus do? He departed and hid himself from them. And I don't think he reappeared and spoke again. In other words, I think John is stating what has already been said by Jesus and is summarizing it. This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. And the next chapter begins with Jesus devoting himself to his disciples, which I'm really looking forward to. First 12 chapters is Jesus doing signs, wonders. His gospel is based around seven signs. And he's doing signs and wonders and preaching the gospel And the main crux of those 12 chapters is rejection. Chapters 1 to 12, once again, centers on the rejection of Jesus by the nation. While chapters 13 through 17 centers on those who did receive him. This is where Jesus is going to devote himself to discipling those that are his. So having said that, the summary of his ministry is Jesus calls people to believe his gospel. But he also warns people of the consequences of those who reject it. And his gospel, for the most part, was rejected. Let's look at his call and warnings before we get into the second and third point, which is rejection and the cause of rejection. Verse 44 again says, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Believing in the Son is believing God the Father. He says that if we believe Him and what He said, then we truly believe God. Jesus called for people to believe the gospel is to believe in Him. That's the gospel, to believe in Christ. In doing so, we're really believing in God. To say I believe God to reject, to reject His Son in essence, is to reject God. We have many, many religions today that say they believe in Jesus. Even Islam, to a, to a degree, says they believe in Jesus. But they don't believe in the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus said in John, the 5th chapter, the twenty, this the last part of the 23rd verse, whoever does not honor the Son, what? Does not honor the Father who sent him. But yet today we have so many who believe in Jesus, yet their lives reflect rejection. What does the biblical mandate to believe really mean? We have a lot of confusion in the term belief today. And I think it's, it's worth spending just a little time on this. Because people take the word believe in the Bible. Like I, I heard many, so many people say, oh, oh, but he believes in Jesus, or she believes in Jesus. 
but their lives never, never reflect a Christ-like attitude. Let's talk about the word believe, the biblical mandate to believe. Believe, believed is used seven times in our text today. Seven times in 14 verses. It comes from the Greek word pesteo. and means, I'm going to give you four basic meanings to it. It means to want to think to be true. Worthy of being trusted. To believe, to regard as trustworthy. The second one is to trust. To believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. To believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in. Third one is have Christian faith. To believe in the good news about Jesus Christ and to become a follower. To be a believer. To be a Christian. And the fourth one is to entrust. To entrust something into the care of someone. To entrust to. To put into the care of. So let me summarize it. In order to have biblical belief, one not only believes intellectually, that's where it may start, but has a complete trust and confidence in the good news of Jesus Christ to put their confidence in Him to the point of following Him and obeying Him all the way into eternity. That's the biblical mandate to believe. And we do grow in that, by the way. May not happen overnight. You know, when when you're a new Christian, you, you come to faith in Christ, you're putting your trust in Him, but that has to grow. And it grows. And, and every day and every year, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And I hardly think one could honor the Father if they claim Jesus as a Savior, but are not following or, obey, or obeying Him. Believing the Son is believing the Father. If you believe and obey and follow the Son, guess what? You're following the Father. You're following God the Father. Seeing the Son is seeing the Father. Remember when Jesus told Philip, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? Now we don't see the Son physically today. We can't. He's at the right hand of God. But we see Him through the pages of Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit helps us with this. And when we believe and when we believe and see the Son, guess what? We are believing and seeing the Father. These first two sayings, believing and seeing... As one commentator says, reveal that those who believe in Christ enjoy a personal knowledge of both the Father and the Son. I love that. We enjoy a personal knowledge of the Father and the Son. Jesus said, we come, the Father and I will come and make our home in you. Now, I don't know why I'm getting a phone call. It just interrupted my whole... You know why? Because I have an iPhone and this is an iPad and they, they're synced together. Anyway, if we love and obey Jesus, both the Father and the Son will come and make their home with us, as John 14 tells us. You see, the Father and the Son are more connected than we understand. They are one in essence and being, yet separate. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I, I don't know how to fix this, but somebody keeps calling me. <laughs> um, this really proves the divinity of, of Christ, that He is really God in human flesh. And if you reject or live habitually in disobedience to the Son, you reject the Father as well. If you love and obey the Son, you love and obey the Father, and you live in light rather than darkness. You see, believing... 
also brings light. We looked at this in chapters 8 and 12, so I'm not going to elaborate on this. But if we truly believe in Christ, we are removed from the dominion of darkness, of sin, and spiritual death and Satan's kingdom into the glorious kingdom of God's beloved Son. Paul told the Colossian believers in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Second thing is the world, not the second point, but the second sub-point, is the world bring judge, uh, the word brings judgment. Now during Jesus' first advent, when he walked the earth, he did not come to judge people, since his purpose was to what? Save the world. Luke tells us that. He came to seek and save the lost, to make atonement for his people. In the future, however, Jesus will judge the ones who reject the words he spoke to them. Actually, the very words that he spoke to them will judge him. The words Jesus speaks are the words of his Father, which represent eternal life. And, th- and to reject those words ought to forfeit salvation. And there's only one thing left, a fearful expectation of judgment, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. He, tell- he tells us in the 10th chapter, 26 and 27 verse, he said, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a, a sacrifice for sins, but a what? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Whenever the word of God was spoken, whether it was the prophets in the Old Testament or Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, the words spoken were the final authority. Brian said that in his exhortation today. The word has the final say. When you and I speak the word of God accurately to people and they reject it, those very words will judge them when they stand before Christ. Not your words, but the words of God that you speak to people will judge them as they stand before Christ because the words spoke to them were not their own, not your own, but God's. We dare not be indifferent toward the word of God because the consequences... How we obey or disobey are eternal. And I started to think that a person can hear preaching, read the word, listen to sermons, and walk away and not care. The very words people ignore will judge them on the last day. Jesus said that. If we claim to be Christians, but reject his word, we are not true Christians. Why? Because Jesus is identified with his word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Rejecting his word. Is rejecting him and the one who sent him. And because Jesus and the father are one. They have the same goals and purposes. Don't they? Jesus was sent to do as Dr. Sproul says. Their joint mission. God's mission was what? To save lost humanity. So God sent a missionary, Jesus Christ. He was the father's missionary. And I was reading a story about a father and son, terrorist team, and how the father sent the son on a suicide bombing mission to Syria. It was a mission of hatred, but both the father and the son were motivated by hatred. Another story, which some of you may be familiar with, is the story of Hudson Taylor, the China missionary. 
His father and mother prayed that he would go to China and be a missionary there. And what? God answered, God answered their prayers. Hudson Taylor was the most widely used missionary in China's history. It was a successful mission of love through the missionary Hudson Taylor. So you have two stories. Two stories diametrically opposed to one another. Two fathers wanting their sons to be missionaries. The first was a missionary fueled by hatred in order to steal, kill, and destroy. The second was fueled by the love for Christ and to see men's souls saved, to save life, not to destroy it. And God sent His only begotten Son on a mission trip to save lives. And after Jesus finished the work on the cross and was resurrected back to life, He was speaking with His disciples and He said to them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He was reminding him, them that his Father sent him there. And as the Father told him what to say and do, now Jesus tells his followers, I am sending you, carry on my mission. And now Jesus stands, uh, Jesus sends us, doesn't he? The believers on a mission trip. We're believers. We're going on a mission trip. Whether it's to a foreign land or to our own neighborhood. But we're going to preach the gospel and see lives saved. Every one of us are missionaries. Doesn't mean you have to go to the Sudan. Doesn't mean you have to go you have to go to China. Doesn't mean you have to go to other parts of the world. Your mission field is starts right here. And just as we were called to believe the gospel of Christ. We ought to preach the gospel to others so they too can believe. However, here's where it starts getting a little sticky and a little hard. Most rejected him, which is our second point. Jesus is rejected by people. Excuse me one minute. And don't be surprised if people reject the gospel you preach to them. Why shouldn't you be surprised? I'll tell you why. There's one good reason why you shouldn't be surprised. They rejected the eternal Son of God. They will reject His gospel that you preach to them. Verse 37 again. Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Now this does not mean Jesus had no converts. Throughout Scripture, people have come to faith in Jesus. I think it just means the nation as a whole rejected their Messiah. Throughout the history of Israel, God demonstrated His miracle-working power of deliverance for His people. And when God delivered them out of Pharaoh's hand and the Egyptians and led them into the wilderness where He miraculously provided for them, did they believe? No. Moses told them in Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 and 4, He says, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see and to hear and ears to hear. Spiritual blindness actually characterized Israel then, in Jesus' day, all the way to the present day. They saw great signs in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when you get to the New Testament and Jesus is doing all these miracles, they just witnessed the greatest sign, the raising of a dead man, Lazarus, which was the seven climatic sign 
in John's gospel. I mean, they just saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And what do they do? Let's put, let's kill Jesus and kill Lazarus. I mean, I said this last time when I preached on this. How stupid can you get? I mean, he, he just raised Lazarus. Now you want to kill him? That's the depth of sin. Listen, faith apart from signs is preferable, right? Apart from signs. We don't need signs to believe. But faith based on signs is still better than no faith at all. Thomas is a classic example. He didn't believe unless he saw. And then Jesus appeared and he said, put your, hand, put your fingers in my hands and your, your fingers in my side. And Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God. And, and Jesus said, well, Thomas, you believe because you saw. But blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. And Jesus said earlier in John chapter 10 verses 37 and 38, probably to the same audience, he said, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do then, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. But no matter what Jesus did or said, their hearts were like rocks and they refused to believe. When I was a new believer, the church I, intend, I attended believed heavily in God doing miracles and healings. I mean, that was big. And I so desperately wanted to see some great signs so I would know for sure that this is real. This is real. And I was truly saved. I, I wanted to see something. Well, I saw people's lives transformed. I did see that. And God miraculously meet people's needs. But a man raised from the dead? No, I never saw that. A blind eye open? I never saw that. A deaf man able to hear? I never saw that. Let me give a disclaimer here. I'm not saying God doesn't do any supernatural wonder anymore or that he can't. I'm not saying that. I believe he does at times. However, I don't believe it's the norm today since we have the completed word of God. It's living and powerful, as I said before, and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word is sufficient. I love the story. I want to go for a little bit on a tangent. I love the story about Peter. When he was talking to his audience, he said, you know, we were on the Mount Transfiguration. When he saw Jesus, he saw Elijah and, and Moses with him. And he said, yet, that great experience, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, with that great experience, and that, was, that became part of scripture. He said, even with that great experience, I have something better the word of God more sure prophetic word so I think God taught me in those days or those years to believe him at his word without or with with or without signs wonders miracles and healings he calls us to live by faith by the way I was healed this is true I was healed three times miraculously so I do believe in his stuff. So I'm not saying that he, this doesn't happen or we'll never see anything supernatural. But we have to admit that if we never saw or experienced anything supernatural, we see the greatest miracles all the time. The transformation of lives by the power of the gospel produced by the Holy Spirit. If the word of God will not convince someone, neither will a sign. 
The raising of a dead man didn't convince them. The opening of a blind man's eyes didn't convince them. The healing of a paralytic man didn't convince them. All it did was nail Jesus to the cross. Now let me bring some balance here. A few were convinced as they saw Jesus' miraculous power at work. And when they believed because of the signs, then they were able to believe his word. The the healing of the official son in chapter 4 of John. He healed, Jesus healed this man's son. And when he went home and saw that his son was healed, and he saw the hour that he was healed, and he asked, and he asked what the, to the people that were there, what hour was he healed? And they told him the same, the hour, the man realized that it was the hour that Jesus said, go home, your son is healed. And it says he believed, and his whole household believed. So, yes, people can believe because of signs. But most didn't believe, even when they saw his signs or when he preached the word. Well, by the way, many in the crowd seemed to believe when they, saw, when they saw his miracles. But it was a superficial belief, not a belief from the heart. I mean, especially the crowd that followed him after he fed 5,000. They all followed him. He's the one who's going to free us from Roman oppression. He's the one who's going to take care of our needs. And then when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they're hailing him, Hosanna in the highest. And a few days later, they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. We see that when I'm, once again, on Palm Sunday, it's just, they're hailing him and then they crucify him. Nothing is new under the sun. Today we have the same. Man's heart is still the same. It's restless. The word of God preached is not enough. They want something spectacular. Change lives to them are not a big deal. It doesn't matter that someone's life is totally changed by the power of God. It's not enough. It's not a, they want to see something supernatural. I'm awestruck at a changed life more than anything. I am awestruck when I hear people that have left the life of sin and God has changed their life. I mean, I look at my friend Donald over here whose life was changed after Brian spoke the word of God to him. I'm awestruck by that. I'd rather see that than a blind man's eyes open. I'd rather see that than anything. Jesus calls people to believe, but most Rejected him. And don't be surprised if people reject the gospel you preach to them. Third point. God hardens the hearts of people who reject him. This is, this is a hard point. The gospel will either... When you speak the gospel to someone, it will either soften a hard heart or harden an already hard heart. Third point is a sad point. But as Dr. John Piper says... Even though the words of Jesus and the stories of John have dark and sad things in them, sad things are for our joy and for our life. Can good come out of a hardened heart? Yes. And we'll see how this paradox plays out. As we have seen, Jesus did seven major signs in the sight of the nation of Israel. They clearly saw his works and they heard his words, but they still rejected him. Why? How could they, in the midst of such evidence, refuse to believe? And listen carefully. The depth of sin blinded the leaders of Israel to the point of 
attributing Christ's divine miracles to Satan. Well, why such unbelief? Well, two reasons John gives us for the unbelief. Number one is divine sovereignty. Number two is human responsibility. This was actually predicted by Isaiah. John starts off by telling his readers that the reason for unbelief was to fulfill the word of the prophet Isaiah. In other words, the rejection of Jesus was not outside God's divine purpose, but rather fulfilled his purpose. God didn't fail. His purposes actually came to pass. Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, predicted Israel's rejection of Jesus hundreds of years earlier, probably 700 700 years earlier. And the first uh, one that John quotes is Isaiah 53.1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, very few believed Isaiah's message. Isaiah had a very fruitless ministry. And his prediction came true when Christ appeared and spoke from heaven and performed miracles and from heaven and was rejected. That was the grand finale of Israel's rejected, rejection of God, the rejection of the Son of God. The years of rebellion and disbelieving finally came to a head of rejection when truth came in the person of Jesus Christ. That was the grand finale of rejection. But then Isaiah goes on and says that they were not able or capable of believing. Why? God's sovereignty. Let's read 30, 39 and 40. Now this is, this is a very difficult verse. You have to take it in context. And you have to understand what John meant. Well, let's read it. Therefore, they, what? Could not believe. For again, Isaiah has, for again, Isaiah said, what? He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. See, John was quoting Isaiah 6.10. What is this saying? God himself has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. This is what the scholars call a judicial hardening. This was not just predicted, but was God's sovereign design. It was a judgment act by God on Israel. In the book of Exodus, we see the children of Israel being abused by Pharaoh. Many of us are familiar with this story. They were being abused by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The burden was so heavy for them that they began to cry out to God and God heard their cry. So Moses and Aaron went before the king and demanded to let the people go into the wilderness so they could worship their God. Well, Pharaoh wouldn't listen and would not let them go. So God caused plagues to come upon the land of Israel. Oh, I'm sorry, the land of Egypt. And the Bible tells us the reason Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. It says he hardened his heart. He was responsible for his actions. And yet, the Bible tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Ten times, or around ten times, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And ten times, or around ten times, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this must be kept in balance. God was directly involved in the affairs of his people so that his purposes might be fulfilled. And at the same time, Pharaoh was responsible for his hard heart. 
And the Apostle Paul argues similarly in, in, in Romans chapter 9 about God's sovereignty and election. In chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that, by, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on, whom, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, this does not mean that God created unbelief or evil in Pharaoh's heart. That's not what it's saying. We must not at all conclude that God's judicial hardening of Israel somehow overrules their responsibility of those who refuse to believe in Christ. I'm going to read three quotes to help you understand this a little. They say it better than I could, so I like to quote them. But one is Leon Morris. He's an Australian scholar. Very well respected. He says this, when John quotes he's blinded their eyes, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. And then Dr. D.A. Carson, another well-respected scholar, he says this, that the hardening of their hearts was as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they themselves have chosen. And then one more by John Piper. He says, The hardening of God does not make fault impossible. It makes fault certain. Now I know some of you still may be thinking, if that's true, then how is man responsible for unbelief? Right? I mean, that's a, that sounds like a legitimate question. And I think it's a legitimate question for an unbelieving world. And I think it's a legitimate question for a brand new Christian. But as you study the scriptures, it becomes less legitimate. Because the Bible really teaches the stuff all the way from Genesis to Revelation. First, I want to say, we believe this. And hear me, please. Because that's what the scriptures teach. Just because we don't understand something does not make it false. I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand how God is one and yet three distinct persons. I don't understand that. I don't understand the incarnation. How Jesus is not 50% God, 50% man. He's not a mixture of God and man. He's 100% God, 100% man. I can't wrap my mind around it. I don't understand the virgin birth. How Mary could give birth to a son without having relations with a man. I, I don't understand that. But I believe it. I can't reconcile in my mind God's sovereignty and salvation and yet man's responsibility. But the Bible teaches both. As one commentator so wisely said, these two truths, God's sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility are twin truths. That run parallel. They will always run parallel. They will never come together. They will never intersect. They will never be diminished legitimately. They are what they are. The fact that you don't understand how they go together only proves that you are less than you should be. It doesn't say anything about God. Your inability to harmonize those things is a reflection of your fallenness, my fallenness. People ask me all the time, how do you harmonize those? And my answer is, I don't. I can't. They can't be harmonized in the human mind. But realize this, 
You are a puny mind, and so am I. And collectively we are puny compared to the infinite, vast, limitless, limitless mind of God. All I can tell you is that the Word of God, in the Word of God, these truths run parallel. And the answer is to believe them both with all your heart. And the one divine sovereignty will inform your worship, and the other human responsibility will motivate your evangelism. It's Dr. John MacArthur. So you got verse 37, it shows us man's responsibility. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then you have God's sovereignty in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. They are both there and we need to believe it, not necessarily understand it. God has not called us to understand everything. Please hear me. I don't understand everything. But if the Bible teaches it, please believe it. Because God said it. Do you understand how you were born again? I mean, can you really understand that? But yet you accept it, right? These truths we need to accept too. And, and, And if we believe it, praise God because no one can turn belief and unbelief on and off unless the Holy Spirit accompanied by the Word of God does it. If you believe it's because God in His infinite mercy, by His Spirit, removed the heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh, flesh, so now you can believe. It's called regeneration or being born again. I asked this question before. Can God use a hardened heart for good? And the answer is yes. You ask how? Think about this. The nation as a whole rejected Jesus Christ. Their long-awaited Messiah. Their rejection... The rejection and hatred was so deep that at this point in John's Gospel, it was only a few days before they would crucify him. He started to get the picture. The rejection nailed Jesus to the cross where he suffered, shed his blood, and died for our sins. Yes, I would say good came out of a hard-hearted Israel, namely our salvation, our joy, and our life. God took their hard heart allowed Israel to nail Jesus Christ to a cross so you and I could be saved. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 11.11. That it was through their, Israel's, trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. He also says in the same chapter in verse 25 that a partial pardoning has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's plan cannot be stopped by sinful, hard-hearted humanity. And the good that came out of hard-hearted Israel was salvation for the non-Jewish world, the Gentiles, which most of us are here. Remember I was at work and uh, I, uh, many, many, many years ago and I would always speak the gospel to these, these guys that I worked with. And, um, you know, they would make fun of me. and Their hearts were hard. Simple as that. They had a hard heart. They would make fun of me. And, and one of the men that I worked with, he was, he was a part-time fireman. He was a great guy. I'm sorry, not a, he was a fireman that worked part-time with us. He was a great guy, a big, brawny guy. He was a tough guy, but the gentlest guy you ever want to meet. And he was so nice. And I remember after they just rejected my gospel and... Um, um, or God's gospel, actually, not mine. Um, 
and uh, you know, make fun of me, whatever they did. He leaned over to me and he said, John, in his gentle way, he said, they make fun of you because they wish they were like you. Now, I don't know if they wish they were like me. I, I don't know. Maybe look like me. I could get. I could understand that. But you know. But um, you see, their hard hearts. This man saw something, and his son was a believer. And I heard a few years ago he became a believer. So, yeah, I think good could come out of a hardened heart. I mean, Christ's death on the cross, it was hardened hearts that nailed them to a cross, and we have salvation today. So, can God use a hardened heart for good emphatically? Yes. Back to Isaiah. And I'm sorry if I'm going a little over, but we're almost finished. It's amazing that Isaiah was commissioned to go to a stubborn people and preach to them would in reality have a fruitless ministry, as I said before. They rejected God so long that he hardened their hearts. And now Isaiah was to preach judgment to an unreceptive nation. Truth was now hidden from them. And that's a scary thought. Century later, centuries later, Jesus spoke parables that had the same effect. Truth hidden. That's why Jesus spoke the parables. He was speaking plainly to them, and all of a sudden, that was it. He spoke parables, because they rejected, they rejected, they rejected. Finally, he spoke to them in parables. The only ones who knew the truth of the parables were his disciples, and the ones who really, truly loved Jesus and wanted to know the truth. And John gives us the reason why Isaiah spoke this prophecy in verse 41. It says, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In other words, Isaiah had a vision of the glory of the enthroned God and also prophesied about the suffering Messiah, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah. Uh, Notice that Isaiah spoke primarily about the glory of God. John spoke about the glory of Jesus. And he made no distinctions between the two, attesting Jesus' oneness with God. And what does John mean by glory? Well, certainly he's talking about Christ's majesty, yes. But I think in this context of both Isaiah and John's gospel, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and exaltation showed his real glory. Both John and Isaiah deeply cared about the glory of God and Christ, unlike some of the Jewish leaders. Listen to verses 42 and 43 again. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but... For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And you notice that John gives them a stinging rebuke of those who believe, because they were believing not the way God wanted them to believe. Because they loved the glory that they were afraid to be put out of the synagogue, so they wouldn't confess Jesus. Because they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that comes from God. Even though many believed it was really an inadequate faith, wasn't it? Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 33, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. See, they were afraid. They may not have been as hard-hearted as the Jewish leaders, but the glory of men overshadowed the glory that comes from God. And I think this is an area we can all fall prey to. The acceptance of others rather than the acceptance of God. We could all fall prey to that. We compromise our walk because we don't want to offend people. A preacher can alter his message so he doesn't offend someone in the congregation. 
When we compromise, what we're saying is this. I love to be accepted by people before God. But we need to be radically, radically concerned about God's eternal acceptance than the temporary, the temporary approval of other people. Amen? Let me conclude and just bring a couple more additional applications. We are called as Christians to preach the gospel. Everyone who is born again is responsible to preach the gospel, whether it's from the pulpit or one-on-one with family members, co-workers, neighbors, etc., We're called to preach the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, somebody has to tell them. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how, how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And this is where we come in. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You and I need to preach the gospel the way somebody preached to us. So number two, We will be rejected by people. Let's not be naive and think people won't reject the gospel because we're such gifted speakers. They not only rejected the most gifted, authoritative, anointed speaker, Jesus Christ in human flesh, but they crucified him. Jesus in Luke 10, 16 said, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me, but whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. When you speak the gospel, and someone rejects it, don't be offended. They just rejected the Holy Trinity. However, I want you to be encouraged because some will respond and come to repentance and faith in Christ. But you will never experience the joy of seeing someone come to Christ unless you open your mouth. And thirdly, the gospel we preach will either soften or harden a person's heart. When you and I proclaim... Christ to a lost world, some hearts will be softened and plead for the mercy of God and some will become even harder. Can a Christian's heart be hardened? In Mark's gospel, Jesus' own disciples saw him feed the multitudes with five loaves and two fish. Remember that? And Jesus tells them to get into a boat and go to the other side of the lake. A storm arises and they are filled with fear. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus walking on the water, and they think it's a ghost, and Jesus says, take heart, it is I. They take him into the boat, and Mark tells us, in the 6th chapter, the 51st to the 52nd verse, he says, and he got into a boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, I'm not going to say, and I don't think the scriptures really teach that a, a believer can get, God will harden a believer's heart. But as Tony Renke from Desiring God Ministry says, I believe it can struggle with occasional callousness in their affections. But this feeling is not the same as the hard heart. A truly hard heart cannot feel or lament its own hardness. And there's the key difference. So more than likely, God will not only harden the persistent unbeliever's heart, but not a believer's heart. Because as you read the scriptures about God hardening a heart, usually it was final. But as genuine believers in Christ, we need to guard our hearts against becoming callous and cold toward the things of God. So make no mistake about this. It is a prerogative of God to judicially harden a heart, and He is still righteous and just. And at the same time, a hardened heart always reflects the willful self-hardening and rejection of God by the sinner. So let me ask you this in closing. 
Do you know Him? Do you embrace Jesus Christ as the greatest treasure in the universe? And if you don't know Him, have you heard the voice of God today through His Word? And if you did, don't harden your heart, but turn to Christ. If you do know Him, and your heart is cold towards Him, and we've all been there, if we're honest, ask for forgiveness, and allow the Holy Spirit to restore your fellowship with Him, and bring unspeakable joy back into your heart and life. Let me end with this proverb. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, soften our hearts today and help the ones who don't know you to come to faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And for those who do know you, help us to desire to know you even more so we can worship you without reservation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.